1-800-889-9789. WAGP Buford. I am your neighbor. I sit behind you in church. We shop at the same grocery store. I had an abortion many years ago, and I felt so alone. I needed someone who knows what I have been through. I received post-abortive counseling that I so desperately needed and found forgiveness. Please support your local crisis pregnancy center and let the healing begin. Contact the Beaufort Women's Center at 525-0300 for more information. Our thanks to Chip Winters of Arby's Roast Beef Restaurant for a programming grant. Arby's features a wide selection of sandwiches, including top-quality roast beef and toasted subs, salads, as well as a wide assortment of side dishes and dessert, all conveniently available at their drive-thru. Arby's is open daily, 10 to 10, and they're located on Highway 21 in Rincon, 1018 William Hilton Parkway between Wexford and Sea Pines on Hilton Head, and in Beaufort next to Verizon near the intersection of Highways 170 and 280. Welcome to The Light, 88.7 FM Bible Live, a live radio call-in with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina, and for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question for Dr. Brogy, you may call 525-1859 or on your Altel cellular phone, star 887. If you're calling outside our immediate area, call toll-free, 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved as a workman of God, not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. As always, welcome to the Bible Line. If you're new, this is a call-in talk show where people can ask questions about the word of God or a challenge they're facing in their personal life or ministry and would like biblical counsel on to reach us the number again locally 525-1859 525-1859 toll free for those outside of South Carolina 877-WAGP our call letters WAGP 980 or you can email us directly here into the studio at TBL uh, for the Bible line at WAGP.net. Rick, great to be here as always. It is indeed, Pastor, and already we have somebody standing by online, so let's go to them right now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Uh, Good morning, Pastor Brody. Thank you for taking my call. You're welcome. Thanks for calling. Uh, I was just wondering if you could explain, uh, in the Bible it talks about uh, certain sins, and then others are referred to as abominations, like homosexuality among among those. Uh, could you explain what, I mean, I know sin is sin in God's eyes, uh, but could you explain the difference between, I guess, regular sins and, and why they refer to those others as abominations? Well, it's a, it's a good question because there are certainly sins that are distinguished in the Word of God. Uh, in terms of the heinousness of the sin and also sometimes the consequences that those sins bring. Uh, During the uh, medieval age, this led Roman Catholics to 
categorize sins uh, typically into two groups, mortal and venial sins. Uh, For them to die with a mortal sin on the soul potentially meant damnation. Um, Here's uh, some general principles I think that we need to begin with. Uh, Sin of any kind or nature separates us from God. The Bible is very clear on that. Your iniquity has made a separation between you and your God such that he does not hear. So sin separates us from the living God. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord does not hear. So sometimes people take the whole venial mortal sin paradigm and they make false conclusions from it. Well, I don't murder people or I'm not homosexual or an adulterer. So I guess I'm okay with God. And the fact is, is our sin, however big or small, brings us under the judgment of God. And so by nature, the scripture can say we are children of wrath. Uh, James 2.10 says if we've sinned in one point of the law, it's like we're guilty of the whole law. Um, You can't say, well, you know, I just have this little sin over here and it's nothing really big. So, you know, I guess in the sight of God, I'm I'm okay. Well, not so in God's economy. It's not the amount of sin, but it's the fact of sin. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. And so we're all equally, therefore, in need of a Savior. With that said, and those general parameters set, there is no question in the Word of God that different sins are viewed by the Lord in different way in terms of, say, consequence. For instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, when the Apostle Paul speaks of sexual sin, uh, he speaks of a different consequence that sexual sin brings than that of non-sexual sin. And so um, in chapter 6, verses 12, really through the end of the chapter, He deals with um, the immoral man. He says the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord's for the body. And uh, he then says, um, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. And so there is a certain consequence that the, uh, and a certain scar that sexual sin brings that other sins do not bring. And that's why when he opens up chapter 7 and verse 1, he says, concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. And of course, in the context, he's saying, look, if you're single, unless you're married, the wisest policy to follow is not to touch a woman, Uh, not in any way physically, romantically to get involved with her. Because when you do that, you bring a scar to your soul. And very often today, in the day that we live in, you know, people get romantically involved, physically involved, different levels from uh, heavy petting all the way to, you know, sexual intercourse. And and that creates a tremendous scar on the human psyche. It creates a scar on the human soul. And so when these relationships are broken up, there's tremendous pain and heartache that could have been avoided if the physical, emotional realm had been guarded. And really, you don't know that you're going to marry someone until you walk down the aisle. So when my daughter, you know, when her hand was asked in marriage, you know, or actually even before that to pursue a relationship with my daughter, so my rules are very simple in the physical realm. You can hold hands when you're engaged. You can kiss when you're married. 
makes it real clear, real simple. Why? Because I was trying to protect her in terms of any emotional damage if the relationship broke up. When relationships break up, even if the physical is guarded, there's always even sometimes pain there. But it's multiplied a thousand times over when you bring the physical in and you violate these simple principles of the Word of God. Uh, Certainly there are sins in the Word that God designates as an abomination. What the uh, people did when they uh, offered their babies to Molech and put him in the fire, God calls that an abomination. For a man to lie with a man, God calls it an, an abomination. It's a total distortion of the created order. It's uh, a person who has slid so far down the slide of sin that they have uh, taken normal activity and totally twisted it and perverted what God wrote into the natural realm. And Romans describes such people as having a reprobate mind. So there are consequences and there are categories of sin you can legitimately say. I think the false conclusions are those that some of our Roman Catholic friends have made in terms of uh, what it means in terms of salvation and other things. The fact is, is we're all desperately in need of a Savior and the ground is level in the end at the cross. But by the grace of God, you and I have the capacity to do anything. 525-1859, 525-1859, toll-free, 877-WAGP980. And if you'd like to email us, you may do so at tbl at net. Our next listener from Texas writes, Is it biblically sound for various members of the congregation to exclaim amen in church while the preacher is preaching? I've been at churches where I don't think anyone says it. I've visited churches where it's rarely said. I've visited churches where all the men seem to be in a contest to see who can say it the most. I've been at churches where women say it sometimes, and there was one where a woman constantly kept saying it very loudly. My understanding is that women shouldn't be saying it, and I question how much men are supposed to be saying it, if at all. I feel like saying it when someone exalts the Lord Jesus, especially when no one else is saying it. I'm assuming it does have a place in the service, What is the biblical purpose of saying it, and what are the guidelines for orderliness? Please let me know what the Bible says about it and what your personal opinion is on it. Well, it is a good question, and 1 Corinthians 14 definitely says that all things be done properly in an orderly manner. And I think sometimes that, you know, people can say amen, which means I agree, My, my heart confirms what's being said, And they say it um, really mindlessly. And uh, I think it can become a distraction. And I think, too, that, you know, sometimes it's an overflow. And there's uh, people in the congregation, sometimes hundreds of them, that will just give a hearty amen because the Spirit of God has just given such deep conviction and confirmation to the human spirit that they can't help but verbalize something. And you don't want to certainly quench the Holy Spirit in his work in doing that. But I have seen and met and witnessed people, sometimes even those who've attended our own church, who have become, I think, quite distracting. Um, And I remember one lady many years ago, over a decade ago, and she kept saying, amen, amen. I could have said, the devil is your best friend. And she would have said, amen. You know, it was just, it was mindless. And it was very distracting. So, you know... I had to gently say to her after the service, I appreciate your enthusiasm and 
I said, but I'm one of those preachers who can't chew gum and talk at the same time. And it becomes a little distracting for me, maybe sometimes for others. So I don't want to tell you not to say amen, but maybe if you can just say it a little bit less, I would appreciate it. She got the message, and she actually responded very well, and I appreciated her for that. So, you know, that's sometimes a pastor's call, and sometimes, too, it's a matter of being all things to all men. I think we can shape our services in a way that, you know, uh, really restrict the potential unsaved people that we can meet and minister to. Um, Over the years, you know, in any church, any large church especially, but it can be true of a small church as well, you will have people who will show up, sometimes visitors, who will do some things that are really unbecoming. Um, and when we do the usher and trainer greeting, which we do from time to time at the church, this is one of the things I have to highlight for the ushers and greeters and warn them because it could happen in a service. And then they are the ones who need to step in and try to rectify the situation. So we speak at community Bible church about the moaner. The moaner was a guy who, uh, back in 95, when we opened our first building, all of a sudden he started going, Oh, Oh. And he'd pause a little bit and he'd go, oh, <laughs> what is going on? And, you know, and I finally had to interrupt because none of my ushers and greeters stepped in. And I said, uh, could someone help that man there in the back? I think he needs some help. And anyway, from the church tradition he came in uh, from, he was from South America. He said, well, that's how, how we express ourselves sometimes. I said, well, that's maybe how they do it in South America. But that's not the way we do it in Beaufort, South Carolina. And it will become a detriment to reaching people for Christ because really we're called to reach a broad range of people. You're reaching people from a high church, ecclesiastical, uh, liturgically driven services like Episcopalians, Catholics, some high Methodists, and you're reaching people maybe from a Pentecostal background and everything in between. So a wise church, if they are trying to reach their culture, and I, and I know all what all the church growth books say that, you know, if we really want to grow, we need to be homogeneous in our approach and focus only on one audience. But that's an unscriptural approach. Uh, Paul was willing to become all things to all men that he might win some to those under the law as under the law to those without the law as those without the law to Jews like Jews, to like slaves like slaves. He, he adapted his lifestyle to be able to win people to Jesus Christ. And really, when you even look at the term Christian in the New Testament, the very first time the term Christian is used in the New Testament is in Acts 11, verse 26. Prior to that, they were just called followers of the way. But in Acts eleven twenty six, it says, and it came about that for an entire year they met with the church and taught considerable numbers, and the disciples were first called Christianos, Christians, in Antioch. And it's an interesting designation that they gave because what was happening is the church fabric was really changing. Instead of having a, a Jewish church where um, you had all Jewish Christians, uh, you had, or even having like under the Old Testament, Jews and proselytes, Gentile converts or Jews and God-fearers. God-fearers were Gentiles who did not, you know, go officially through the um, conversion via, 
circumcision, but they recognized that the God of Israel was the one true God whom should be worshipped. You had these uh, very segmented groups of people that didn't really mix. And what caught the attention of people in Antioch is you had an international community, Jew and Gentile alike, and a church that was homogeneous uh, in terms of it was a mix that was multicultural. So it was not your typical church. So they gave them a, a different name. And of course, the people in Antioch, there's a number of historical records outside of Acts where you find these Antiochians giving nicknames to certain groups of people. And so they said, this is a whole other sect or group that's different from the Jews, different from the God-fearers, different from the pagan Gentiles. And it's multicultural and they function together and we're going to fall call them Christians. They they focus on one person, and that's Jesus Christ. And so, you know, this is an important principle to understand in terms of being all things to all men. So, you know, again, I, I don't think you can say you can't say amen in the church, but if it's certainly out of control or mindless, then, you know, the pastors, the elders, those who are involved, you know, we had another service. It wasn't the moaner. We call him tambourine man. And uh, we opened this new building, you know, four and a half years ago. And on the first service, this guy shows up with a tambourine. All of a sudden, during the worship service, he starts banging a tambourine. Well, you know, maybe he did that in the church he came from. But to me, it called attention to him. And so we had to kind of pull him aside. And he says, well, you know, I'm led of the spirit to play my tambourine. And one of our men said, well... I'm led of the spirit to tell you that you shouldn't, you know? And so, uh, again, everything decently and in order and you don't want to quench the spirit. You want to be all things to all men. So there's balancing biblical principles that come into play. Now your comment that a woman couldn't say amen, I think is a little distorted and a misunderstanding of probably your, uh, I'm guessing this, I don't know, but, um, in First Corinthians 14, when it says that a woman is uh, not to speak in church, if you look at that in the context, it's a qualified speaking. It was the kind of speaking that would, um, in a local assembly, be in violation of First Timothy 2 of uh, teaching and exercise authority over a man. But certainly women could pray in church. They could prophesy in church. They could say amen in church. Uh, so I don't know where you're coming from on that, but you might want to listen to my sermon on first, uh, Timothy two, 11 to 15. I think that might be helpful to you. Great question. Let's go to our next one. All right. Our next uh, caller dictated their question. They'd like to know what happens to the human body when a non-believer goes to hell. Well, the body immediately goes into the grave, uh, awaiting the new resurrected body. Uh, Jesus in John chapter 5, speaks not so much of the time of resurrection, but the kind of resurrection. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear shall live. For just as the Father has life in himself, so he gave the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tomb shall hear his voice and shall come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. 
So while Easter is a time of great celebration for the church, what always amazes me because, uh, and I'm not shocked by it because people are blind, they're like sheep without shepherds, is all the non-Christians who always show up on Easter Sunday. And really, while it is a point for celebration for those who know the Lord, it's actually Easter something that the unbeliever shouldn't celebrate. Because Easter guarantees not only will I have a resurrected body suited for heaven, because this mortality must put on immortality, uh, flesh and blood as we live in these human bodies right now are not suited for heaven. Uh, God teaches we need a new resurrected body like Christ that will be, of course, without a sin nature and like his body will be suited for a different place. Even so, the unbeliever needs a different kind of body that is suited for hell. Now, Jesus, by the way, is not teaching salvation by works when he says those who did the good to resurrection of life, those who did the evil, and the words deeds are in italics in most of your translations because that's what's implied, though it's not in the Greek text. But he's really speaking of two overall lifestyles that represent whether a person has faith or not. He's already taught just a few verses earlier that salvation is by grace through faith. I say to you, the one who hears my word and believes him who sent me has at this moment eternal life does not come into judgment. He's passed out of death into life on the basis of his faith in Messiah, not on the basis of human deeds. But if your faith is real, it's going to show itself. And so in the end, you're either, your life either reflects a new life or reflects the old life. It reflects a life that's lived for God, for Christ, for his honor, or reflects a life that's lived for sin, self, and this world only. And of course, you don't become a Christian by the things that you do. You become a Christian by your faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. But in the end, God can look down and because a man is known by his fruits, whether his conversion is real or not is seen by whether or not his lifestyle has changed. Now, certainly there are non-Christians who do good things, but their motivation for doing them is a form of self-righteousness. Romans 10, you had Jewish people who did good things. They have a zeal for God, Paul wrote, but not in accordance with knowledge. And they refused to submit themselves to the righteousness that comes on the basis of faith. And so they were rebels at heart, though they did good things. So the Lord is talking about good things done for his glory versus evil deeds, uh, sinful ways um, that are done for self. And so hell is an awful place. It's a place where the worm does not die, where the fire is not quenched. If your body currently went into hell, it would be consumed in a matter of seconds. But the body that goes to hell is never consumed. Uh, The person is in agony in the flame. Uh, It's a real body, (laughs) but it is a body that is not consumed. So this is something to consider, something to think about. Uh, In the end, God gives a new resurrected body. People sometimes ask me, well, you know, what's the believer doing right now? Is he up in heaven walking around in a new resurrected body? And the answer is no, he's not. Um, And yet people often say that at funeral. He's just up in heaven now and he's in his new body. No, he's not. He is awaiting the resurrection of the dead. The, The trumpet of God will sound.
Uh, the dead in Christ shall rise first because absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So you don't get a resurrected body the moment you die. It appears, however, though, you're given some kind of temporary spirit body that is identifiable, like Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration, and like the tribulation saints who are in heaven who are wearing robes. Well, it has to hang on something. There's some kind of visible expression to it. But God is going to bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. That's what Jesus taught, that um, those who have already died are not going to be left behind. They're the first to come out of the grave. And then those of us who are alive at the catching up of the church will be caught up with them and we'll meet the Lord in the air. So we're still looking for that resurrected body. Um, and uh, it is yet in the future. Great question. Let's go to the next one. All right. Revelation 20, verse 4. Who are these people? Where did they come from? And are they part of, uh, or are they a part of the first resurrection? And if so, how? Let me just turn there to the book of Revelation. And it's not revelations, as most people say, but as Rick said correctly, revelation. It's one revelation. Yeah, people say, when are you going to teach in the book of Revelations? No, it's Revelation. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who'd been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This, he says, is the first resurrection in verse 5. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Uh, It's plural. They sat upon them. It's not a pronoun in Greek, but it's a plural verb. And so it's supplied here in Revelation 20 in verse 4. And he speaks of these who, to whom judgment was given. Again, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. And so I'm going to turn back here in my Bible to a verse that's found in Matthew's Gospel. And if I remember, it's Matthew chapter 19. And uh, let me just turn there very quickly. Here it is, Matthew 19. And Jesus called them and said to themselves, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles... Lorded over them, in their great men exercise authority over them. It is not so among you, but whoever wishes to be great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes uh, to be first among you shall be your slave. So he makes this statement about servanthood, and then listen very carefully to what he says in verse 28. Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you all shall shall sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So again, you know, it's in response to a question. Peter says, Lord, we've left everything and followed you. Uh, What then will there be for us? He says, listen, in the regeneration, which is speaking about that time on planet Earth when God regenerates the current uh, Earth. It's not going to be as it is today. The the lamb will lay down with the wolf. The baby will play next to the cobra's nest. 
and not be harmed. And so somehow the curse will have been lifted off of the creation. Not totally, but it's partial. It's a regeneration. Uh, just like you're regenerated by the Spirit today. Is your salvation complete? No, it's it's partial. You're still waiting for the completeness of your salvation. You have been saved in the past from the penalty of sin. You are being saved in the present from the power of sin. You will be saved someday from the very presence of sin. In the past, we call that justification. In the present, we call it sanctification. In the future, it's what we refer to as glorification when our salvation is completed. Well, the earth at one time was perfect. But when sin entered into the world, the creation fell with Adam. And that wasn't, a, that wasn't a, a bad thing. That was a good thing. That was an expression of the grace of God. Had God left Adam and Eve in an idyllic kind of world uh, where he didn't have to work from the sweat of his brow, where she could effortlessly deliver babies, then there would not be a constant reminder that there's something wrong. And so in Romans 8, Paul says the whole creation is shouting and it's looking for that future time when God will redeem it. And so when God allowed the creation to fall, he put man on notice that sin with all of its consequences had entered into the world. And so during the millennial reign, here a reference to the regeneration God is going to at least partially, not totally, lift the curse off of the planet. And then in the future, at the end of the thousand years, God, as Revelation 20, um, 21 indicates, he's going to create a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells, as Peter references. This current earth is going to be consumed with fire. He's not going to remake this current planet, he's going to totally obliterate it. And that idea that has come up in recent theology, and some good people have held it, and it's just wrong. He's not going to remake the current earth. He's going to totally destroy it, burn it with fire, and create a brand new heaven and a brand new earth, Revelation 21.1. And that fits perfectly with Second Peter 3. But during the regeneration, during the millennial reign of Christ, Uh, There are some people that John sees who are sitting on a throne to whom judgment is given. I don't think it is the saints of God in general. Uh, Some have said, well, it's the 24 elders represented in the church in Revelation 5. I don't think so. I I think this is what Jesus said specifically in Matthew 19. It's also in Luke's gospel, Luke 22, where he reminds these men Peter says, you've left everything. He said, actually, you know, you are going to be given some things. You're going to sit on the thrones, judging the tribes of Israel, as Luke's account adds. Um, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my sake shall receive many times as much and shall inherit eternal life. Um, So not only in this life, as Mark says, but in the life to come, God's going to bless you beyond measure. And specifically in reference to the apostles, they're going to be the ones sitting on these thrones to whom judgment is given. So uh, again, I think what he's doing here, and this is um, what makes your question a little quirky, um, they are part of the first resurrection because understand uh, the first resurrection is not a single event. It's not a single event. It's the first resurrection program 
in deference to the second resurrection program. Who is the first to rise from the dead ever? Well, in the truest sense, the Lord Jesus. There were certain people that Elijah raised from the dead, that Elisha raised from the dead. Jesus raised three people during his public ministry. Peter raised someone from the dead. The apostle Paul raised someone from the dead. But uh, not in resurrected bodies. Jesus was the first to come out of the grave in a resurrected body. Matthew indicates after his resurrection, a small handful of saints were resurrected. They walked around the city of Jerusalem, and presumably they were then taken up into heaven. The text doesn't say, but that's the implication. Uh, Then there's the catching up of the church. Then there are the Old Testament saints in the tribulation, saints who died during the tribulation, who were raised at the end of the seven years. That's all part of the first resurrection. Uh, and there's the second resurrection as well. And just as in physical death, people don't all die at once. In, the, um, in this first resurrection program, they're not all raised at once. They're going to be raised in this program. And at the end of the thousand years, the second resurrection takes place. And those are the resurrection of lost folks. So um, in either case, uh, I think what is confusing to some people is they don't realize that he's previewing all the way through the millennial reign of Christ. And that would include the apostles who are raised with all the other Old Testament saints, um, you know, both in the rapture and in the end of the seven years, Daniel 12, 1 and 2. So I take it these are, these are the apostles. Hmm. All right, very good. 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-924. 7980 or email us at tbl at wagp.net. Our next listener asked, is there any scripture that shows a Christian living in unforgiveness? Christian living in unforgiveness. Well, uh, I'm not sure exactly what you mean by that, but I can pretty much guess what you're thinking. It is true that there's a distinction in the word of God between positional forgiveness and experiential forgiveness. A positional truth is something that's true of you by virtue of the fact that you've received Christ as your Lord. And while there are some things that are true of you positionally, they may not necessarily be true of you experientially. For instance, the day God saved you, he gave you a spiritual gift. There are 20 such gifts listed in the New Testament. I believe at least 16 of which are being given today. While you have a spiritual gift... You may not necessarily be exercising it. And so Peter says in 1 Peter 4, employ your gift as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. God expects you to use it. Paul has to uh, put a little steel in Timothy's spine because as a young pastor, he's a little bit shy and he says, stir up the gift of God within you. He wants him to exercise his gift with boldness. And don't let anyone look down on your youthfulness. You know the call. You know the gifting that God's put in your life. So step up to the plate and go for it, Timothy. So while something may be true of us positionally, some people listening to me this right now at this moment, they they don't even know what their spiritual gift is. Or they are calling something a gift that is not a gift at all in the spiritual sense. They say, well, I don't have the gift of music and somebody else says, well, I have the gift of singing. That's not a spiritual gift. That's a, that's a natural talent that God may have given you, but it's not a spiritual gift. So some people 
who have spiritual gifts don't even know what they are, much less exercising them in a conscious way where they're trying to be good stewards of it. Well, the same is true with forgiveness. Uh, Positionally, the day you receive Christ as your Savior, God forgave you of all your sins, past, present, and future. There is a text in Colossians that is a beautiful picture of what God did for us in Jesus Christ, and I think it it's worth uh, me reading. So let me just turn there for just a second to Colossians. And interestingly, he's already said in Colossians 1, 14, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And of course, he affirms that through the blood of the cross. And then in Colossians 2, he makes this statement. Um, and when you were dead in your transgressions and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, <clears throat> he made you alive together with him having forgiven us of all of our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. And so he gives a picture of a first century uh, situation that the reader would have been very familiar with. <clears throat> the term certificate of debt, CD, doesn't refer to a bank deposit, but in that day it referred to a, a legal instrument that was nailed to the outside of a prison door or if someone was under house arrest outside of the house. Actually, some archaeologists have recovered a few of these, and if you go to the Biblical Museum in Jerusalem, you can see some of them. And a certificate of debt basically listed the crime that was committed and then what was necessary to pay the crime. And then after the crime was paid, they would write across the certificate of debt uh, to tell us die. Uh, by the way, that's the same word uttered by the Lord Jesus as recorded in John 19.30, to tell us die. We translate that one Greek word, it is finished. Uh, you could translate it paid in full. That's the thought behind it. They have found tax receipts from the first century where someone went into a Roman tax office and they paid their debt. And next to their name, when the debt was paid, they wrote the Greek word tetelestai. Some of those, by the way, are also on display in the biblical museum there in Jerusalem. And so... Paul is saying, listen, there was a certificate of debt that God had against you, and it consisted of decrees, the laws of God, which uh, were hostile to you. Why? Because you broke those laws as I did, and they condemned you. Uh, The law of God terrifies you, Paul says, and that it, it shows you how wicked you are by nature and your need for forgiveness. And so it becomes like a a schoolmaster, a tutor that should lead you to faith in Christ. When you look in the mirror and you see God's holy standards and you see how you have broken them, then it should terrify you and cause you to flee to the living God. Well, God removed our certificate of debt. Well, what did he do with it? God can't just overlook sin and blanket sin and, and still remain just and holy. Well, he's taken it out of the way, and the Scripture says he nailed it to the cross. He paid for it with the blood of Christ. So positionally, you are forgiven. So you read passages like Romans 3 and Hebrews 10 that speaks of all of our sin, past, present, and future that has been forgiven. But while that may be true of you positionally, it may not be true of you experientially. 
Uh, I'm speaking to some people today who in the recesses of their heart save people feel guilty. You're living under guilt and you're not living a clean, clear life. Sometimes because you really haven't dealt with the sin or you haven't by faith claimed what is yours positionally so that you can experientially know it. So first John, for instance, says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Unfortunately, that verse has often been used in evangelism and by pastors as a salvation verse. It has nothing to do with salvation. You're not saved by confessing your sin. If all you had to do was confess your sin to God, then Jesus never would have had to have died. He could have said, oh, you want to be forgiven? Just confess your sin. And my Father will be faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you. And then he could have ascended up into heaven and missed the crucifixion altogether. No, this is a verse that is dealing not with our relationship with God, not with our position, but with our fellowship with God, our intimacy with God. And some Christians, because they have not dealt with known sin in the human heart, are walking in, in one sense, an unforgiven state, experientially. And so because of that, they're grieving the Holy Spirit and preventing his work in their heart and life because they haven't dealt with sin. And until they do, uh, they're going to be miserable people and live with a lot of heartache and pain. And so God tells his people to confess. The Greek word means to say the same thing. Say what God says about your sin. Deal with it honestly before him. And God says he's faithful and just to forgive you. You know, if you have a million dollars in the bank and you present the teller with a check for $100, you don't have to beg and plead with her to give you $100 because of what's in the bank, you can expect her to give it to you. But if you write a check for $100 and the account was closed six months ago, you can cry, weep, and plead all you want. There's nothing there to dole out. Well, you know, you can cry, weep, uh, crocodile tears, but if you haven't been saved, all the confession of sin in the world means nothing. God calls you first to come and put your faith in Jesus. But if you've done that, God says he can be faithful and just to forgive us. We have an unlimited bank account. That's not an excuse to sin. He will write after that, say, my little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He says, I'm I'm telling you this, not so that you will sin, but so that you won't sin. The devil will say, well, you know, go ahead and sin. You can just confess it later. No, when the more you grow in grace and understand God's grace, that grace teaches you to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to want to live holy and righteously. All right, let's go to the next question. All right, very good. Um, A person writes, I've heard you mention a couple of times that Lot's family counted up to 10. It's extremely fascinating, but try as I may, I can't see it. I've gotten up to six with sons-in-law and daughters, counting the daughters as the same in eight and 14, but uh, I guess he's talking about Genesis. Uh, But it seems as if in 1912, Genesis 19.12, the angels are only asking the question, are there more? not assuming that there are. Is there something stronger in the original language that I'm missing? Lot, he's number one. Okay. Lot's wife, mm-hmm. two. Lot's sons-in-law, uh, a son-in-law, singular, verse one, the two angels came 
to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. And of course, uh, <coughs> so there's Lot. And um, so it, it it mentions his son-in-law, singular. And then a few verses later, uh, it speaks of Lot's married daughter. So, okay, so you got Lot, Lot's wife. you got a son-in-law who's already married to a daughter. So there's four right there. Um, 1912, it says, Then the men said to Lot, Whom else have you here? A son-in-law in your sons, in your daughters, both plural, and whomever else you have in the city, bring them out to the place for we are about to destroy the place. So you've got Lot one, Lot's wife two, his son-in-law, that's a married guy to one of his daughters, that's four. Lot's sons, uh, that's two plus, uh, so that's what, six. Yes. Lot's unmarried daughters, we know there were two of them, that's eight. And then there's their fiancés that are mentioned in 1819, that's ten. So there's 10. So again, you know, if there are 10 righteous men in the city, Lord, would you destroy it in that great conversation that Abraham has is in all humility, Lord, uh, just bear with me one more time when he gets down to that final. What about just 10? God said, look, if there were 10 righteous people, I would spare the city. If Lot had just done it well with his own family and those to whom his daughters gave their lives to in terms of testimony and witness, Sodom could have been spared. God takes no pleasure, Ezekiel the prophet says, in the death of the wicked. Uh, But Lot couldn't even pull it off with his own family. Why? Because he is what we might call a carnal Christian to put it in New term, New Testament theology. Now, I know the term carnal Christian has been grossly abused and misunderstood, but some in misunderstanding it and rebelling and kicking against it has totally dismissed that. Well, there are carnal Christians. There are people who are saved, like Lot. He is in the New Testament called a righteous man, righteous Lot. But Lot had some major issues going on in his life. And uh, he wasn't walking close to the Lord, and he paid a tremendous price in his own family for it. Sad, sad commentary on this man's life. All right, very good. Uh, Our next caller says that their church performs infant dedications, but the pastor will not do these dedications for babies born out of wedlock or to parents where one of them has previously been married. Is any of this scriptural? Well, you know, I I received another question recently, and I haven't answered them. I get so many questions, I can't answer them all. People think, well, you know, just answer me. Well, if I write down, type out every question, sometimes it takes 30 minutes. And if you get eight, ten questions a week, you you know, I'd be spending my whole time answering questions. So I answer as many as I can. But let me just say in terms of baby dedication— um, the only case that we have in the truest sense for baby dedication is found in First Samuel where Hannah dedicates her son Samuel. But understand, it's not like people dedicate the child today. They, he's dedicating, she's dedicating that son to the Lord to be a priest, and she doesn't do that with her other sons, just her firstborn. 
And so the firstborn had a special role and place in the family. And she, in that case, dedicated him to the Lord to be a priest the rest of his life. That's far different from what we're doing in our day. That's not to say that when you have a baby, you shouldn't before the Lord say, hey, Lord, thank you for this wonderful child. This is a gift from you. We, we as parents, you know, look to you to help us to raise it. Really, if anything, we should dedicate parents and not children. Uh, I think um, a lot of baby dedication ceremonies that go on today are, you know, to satisfy people who've come from backgrounds where they uh, baptize infants. And so we'll we'll shut those people up and we'll, we'll do something for them and their babies. And I think it lends to confusion. Do I think you should dedicate your children, all of them, all of them to the Lord? Is there a dictate in the New Testament for some formal ceremony in the local assembly? No, if there were, we'd be doing them all the time at Community Bible Church. We've got so many kids born every year, uh, but there's not. And, uh, and it's not magical either. If anything, put the emphasis on the parent because that's where God puts it in Scripture. Um, anyway, uh, you know, bringing it down to uh, babies born out of wedlock. Look, those babies are innocent, created by God. Those, that single mom should dedicate that child. But, but I think there's a general misunderstanding of what baby dedication is all about. So let's go to the next caller who's right. waiting. We do have a live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hello, Pastor Brogan. Yes, thank Hi. you for calling today. Yes, thank you for the um, way you just express God's word and, and just declare truth. I just want to thank you and your wife for that. I have a question uh, on uh, inter interracial marriages or relationships. I understand from a biblical standpoint of how uh, Christians should be married to another Christian. How does that work from the Bible? Or is we in a culture now where you're seeing, especially in the South, where you're seeing more of the white and the black uh, relationships, how will you advise us in, in wisdom and the scripture in that? And is that, is it okay? It's a great question, and it's one that certainly comes up more and more because there's more and more interracial marriages in our day. You know, in one sense, remember, we're all related. Uh, we may look different, but we're all related because we all stem from our original parents, Adam and Eve. Now, that's something that's denied blatantly today, that the world started with a first parents, that they were God's first creation. And because evolutionary thought has entered so broadly into the church today— which to me is a form of racism, and that's how um, Hitler used it. He argued for the Aryan race the, uh, to be the superior race and Jews and others who are inferior and ought to be destroyed and annihilated. And where did he get the idea from evolution? Uh, he argued that there were others that were less evolved and therefore less equal and therefore should be destroyed. But you know, the heart of the scripture is that we all originate from the same parents. And the nations of the world don't develop until uh, Genesis 10 and 11 when God separates the uh, nations uh, through language groups. And as those language groups began to um, intermarry with one another, because obviously if you speak Hebrew, you're not going to try to marry someone whom you can't understand who speaks Chinese. And so they began to intermarry through these different language groups, and given enough time, then there are racial distinctions that develop, whether it's the high cheekbone and 
slanted upward eyes of a Chinese person or whether it's an African-American or a certain type of European, and there are many, uh, and there are different features that begin to uh, unfold. The Bible does not prohibit interracial marriages. The only prohibition in the Word of God in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 is for a believer to marry an unbeliever. That is the prohibition. So in one sense, a Joseph marries an Egyptian. Um, she's technically of a different race of people. There's an interracial marriage. Moses marries someone who is also not a Hebrew. Um, that's an interracial marriage. Uh, what was prohibited would be for those men to marry unbelievers. Now, with that said, I think like with anything else, when someone marries uh, from a totally different cultural background, there are potential challenges that they can face. And so some of our Marines go overseas and they, they, they marry a Filipino or a Japanese gal or places where we've had bases traditionally. And, and sometimes there's real adjustments that they will face if uh, they had not done that. If uh, a Caucasian marries an African-American, it depends how accepting the families are. Uh, they might be very unaccepting, and they may have a lot of turmoil that they walk into uh, in that marriage when they walk down the aisle. So they just need to be prepared for it. And this is why it's so important that we seek God, because in the end, what matters is not how people respond or what other people think, but what God thinks. And am I marrying out of lust or am I marrying truly out of love and a call from God? Has God showed me that this is to be the individual that I am to give my life to until death separates me? And if God has shown me that, doesn't matter what people think. Uh, doesn't matter if I'm rejected. Be prepared for it in some situations. Not all, but in some. Uh, be prepared for maybe some major cultural adjustments um, but if God's called you, he will give you the grace to walk through those adjustments and to help you uh, to achieve it. So again, there's no prohibition against interracial marriages in the word of God. What is pro where the prohibition does fall is a believer marrying an unbeliever. And generally speaking, people don't marry outside of their race uh, as a general rule. And I think there's probably reasons for that, you know, under the leadership of God. But there are occasions, like with Moses and Joseph, two examples in Scripture, uh, where that does happen, even with very godly people, because it's a godly decision that God has his hand in. And so that becomes the key, is God behind my decision? Great question. Wish I could spend a little more time on it, but we are out of time today. We appreciate the many who have called and emailed, number of email questions we didn't get to, but... Sometimes we'll go a little bit slower when there's less calls so we can give more time uh, and fuller biblical answers to the questions you're asking. Great to be with you today. Hope you have a great day. May the Lord bless you as you walk with him.